Hey guys, warm welcome to episode number 11 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Hope that by now you know me. I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title. And as custom, I thank you guys for joining me. Your continued support means the world. I hope you're all good. Are you all shopped out and getting ready for Christmas? Yes? No? Thank God for online shopping is all I can say. This week I also have a special thank you to all of you guys who listen in here to this Welsh guy waffle on for 30 minutes or so each week because this week the podcast has passed the 20,000 download mark. I can't even begin to tell you how insane I think that is. When I started doing this I hoped I'd get a few listens sure but when I think of that number and if you saw that quantified well it just batters my mind. So as you can imagine I'm super pleased and I've had a proper lift with that. Exciting times are coming here at the podcast in the next few weeks. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you to one and all for making this happen. You guys rule, you're awesome, and I hope you'll stay with me as the true crime enthusiast grows. As I've explained before, I have a working list of always about five or six cases to cover on my fridge blackboard, so I know where I am and what to seek out. But I'm always receptive to audience ideas as well. How about it guys? Any pressing UK cases that you think, oh yeah, I'd like to hear about that, that's an interesting one. If so, please feel free to contact me and let me know. You know the type that I favour on the podcast, and who knows, the ones you suggest may already be on my list, or they may just get a spot on the blackboard, you never know. I've got a couple more episodes to put out this year, then I'm having a slight break over Christmas, and I shall be back very early in the new year. Well, I say I'm having a break, I may have a little Christmas gift up my sleeve watch this space or listen to this space rather this week i have another new podcast to recommend it's again a relatively newish true crime one and this time it's true crime finland now last week i mentioned that i enjoyed learning about cases not just uk based but worldwide so i've tuned into this podcast as i will admit i know nothing about crime in scandinavia It's a great podcast, it's been tacked onto the ever-growing list of ones that I catch up with and you'll find a right mixed bag of stuff here. The episodes are well-read, well-researched and very, very slickly presented and they cover some of the most disturbing and unfamiliar crimes you'll ever come across from subjects such as human trafficking and disappearing gold buyers to mass shootings in schools and Ponzi fraud schemes. I applaud a mixed bag of stuff and I've enjoyed listening here. I certainly continue to do so and I hope that you guys do too. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts from for something a bit out of the familiar zone. And please drop it some love on iTunes. It's well worth it. And now for something completely different. Guess who's been watching a lot of the Pythons recently. That's nearly 50 years old and it's still as wonderful now. No, it's not different really. Although this week isn't a murder case, it's still a macabre and horrific one. This week's episode deals with disturbing content that may disturb or cause upset to some listeners, although I've tried to write the case in a sensitive manner which I do hope comes across. None of the victims have been named and the full details of the crimes have been sanitised. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast we look at the case of a serial sex attacker who is believed by many to be one of, if not the, most prolific sex attacker in British criminal history. The sheer scale of the offences that this guy is responsible for can only be estimated at, but it may run into the hundreds, if not thousands, and that is not an exaggeration. Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of Monarch Man. Although this is unlikely to have been the first attack, 
The coordinated hunt for the rapist began in the summer of 1998 in the Leon C district of Essex and in the early hours of the 1998 August Bank Holiday Monday, a 15-year-old schoolgirl was attacked by a savage sex attacker in an assault that was to lead to a massive police inquiry called Operation Monarch. She was making her way home alone on the busy A13 road in the early hours after having been on a night out with friends and she was suddenly attacked from behind by a strong athletic man who lifted her clear off the ground with a hand clamped over her mouth and a fist thrust into her neck. Terrifyingly, the attacker told her, If you scream, I'll fucking kill you. I'll break your neck. Don't scream. Just do what I say. I won't rape you. He then proceeded to force the terrified girl across the road to a secluded car park nearby, where in a horrifying ordeal that lasted more than an hour, he forced the girl to strip, and then repeatedly raped her. Horrifically, when he'd finished this appalling attack, he then forced his victim to thank him and praise his sexual prowess, then fled, leaving the girl sobbing in the darkened car park. The incident was reported to police and the rapist was described by the victim as being in his late 20s to early 30s, dark-haired, tanned and clean-cut and smelling clean and having good looks, wearing jeans and a black and white striped long-sleeved t-shirt. He'd spent a considerable period of time with the victim so she could provide a good description of her attacker and he had also shown a disregard for forensic evidence, as samples were recovered from the scene of the attack, and a DNA profile of the man was obtained. Less than two weeks later, on Saturday 12th of September, again in Southend near the A13, and at about 9.45pm at night, a 16-year-old girl and her boyfriend walking through a pedestrian underpass were arguing, and were separated when the boyfriend stormed off, leaving the girl behind crying. She was then grabbed from behind in the same way as the victim two weeks before and a hand clamped over her mouth and she was told not to scream or she'd be killed. But her boyfriend heard this struggle and he rushed back and attacked the assailant, defending his girlfriend. But the attacker was too strong and managed to overpower and subdue the girl's boyfriend. Now the fight did make the attacker flee, but before he did, he threatened and warned the couple not to report what had happened, saying, If you do... I'll come back and kill you. The couple of course ignored this and they did report the incident to police. When the police arrived, the couple were able to give a detailed description of the man and this was one that tallied with the description given from the attack two weeks before. He was late 20s to early 30s, good looking, clean smelling. They were also able to describe in detail his clothing, his jeans, white trainers and a distinctive long sleeve t-shirt with vertical black and white stripes. About an hour later, and two miles from the scene of this attack, a 26-year-old woman was walking home from work alone when she was grabbed from behind and forced along the side alleyway of one of the nearby unoccupied properties. Holding her in a strong grip, the man told the frightened woman, Just do what I say. I won't rape you, but if you try to get away from me, I'll kill you with one move. What the woman was then subjected to was horrendous and she was eventually let go after a lengthy assault that had been accompanied by a vicious string of threats, claiming she'd be maimed or even killed if she refused his demands or tried to flee. She ran straight home to her parents, and they immediately contacted police. For the second time that evening, police were responding to reports of a rape, and it instantly became clear that the same man was responsible for both crimes. 
as being foiled in his initial attack, he wasn't finished. The description matched the one given earlier that evening, even down to the clothing. The suspect's DNA was also obtained from the neck of a bottle that had been left at the scene, and this was to eventually prove a match for the DNA profile obtained from the attack two weeks previously. Five and a half hours later now, and more than 50 miles away in St John's Wood, northwest London, a female croupier was making her way home in the early hours after working a long shift at a nearby casino, and having just recently obtained a pair of rollerblades, she decided to try them on her way home, theorising that it was dark and deserted, and she could practice without being self-conscious, in case she fell over. I can understand the logic there completely, but it was harder than she expected it to be, and eventually she took the rollerblades off and decided to just walk home. As she walked up St John's Wood High Street, she heard the sound of a bottle being kicked along the ground and turned to see a man walking behind her. She turned and continued to walk up the road, but stopped a short distance later, feeling uneasy. When she looked back, there was no one there, she couldn't see anybody, so she continued relieved, thinking she was safe. She wasn't. Before she could cry out, a hand grabbed her from behind and she was forced into a nearby garden that was shielded from the road by trees. She was then subjected to a prolonged and again very perverse sexual assault, at the climax of which she was savagely raped. Following the assault, the rapist then kept his victim talking for at least, by her own estimation, three quarters of an hour. It was in this time that he perhaps unwittingly revealed clues about himself. He cried and told her that he was sorry and he hadn't wished her any harm and that he thought her very beautiful and wished that she had been his. He also said that he risked prison for what he'd done and how prison didn't deter any feelings, not anymore, hinting that he had previously served time and perhaps for the same kind of offending. But then, and this was to become crucial later on, he interrupted himself and said, It would never happen. Richie's pals would never let him go inside. Shit, I just said my name. The rapist eventually turned quiet and then left. The victim then walked home, awoke his sleeping husband and told him what had happened, which he immediately reported to police. The description given was very detailed, describing the now familiar characteristics and clothing, and although it wasn't recognised immediately, it was to become the third such description of the rapist that had been given in less than 12 hours. DNA from the victim's hairbrush was eventually found to be an exact match for the two offences that had been reported in Southend. That made three attacks in less than nine hours, covering more than 50 miles in difference. The rapist had now attacked four times to police knowledge, three of them on the same evening. When all these attacks were linked, Essex Police and the Metropolitan Police merged to form a joint inquiry called Operation Monarch, and the National Crime Faculty and the Forensic Science Service were also brought in to try to establish a profile of the man they were hunting, who was now referred to by police as Monarch Man. The database of a previous serial rape inquiry, Operation Catchment, was also looked at, as this had dealt also with a multiple rapist who had attacked over a considerable geographical area, and the offences had been DNA linked in the case as well. The offender in catchment had been caught and given three life sentences, and this inquiry was used as a benchmark and a guide for Operation Monarch to run to. As the rapist police were now hunting, had already proven himself to have attacked at least four times, had he attacked before this? 
Almost immediately, police found details of an attack which bore all the hallmarks of the suspect, this one having occurred in Brighton in Sussex on the 29th of August 1998. In this attack, an 18-year-old girl had been dragged into an alleyway and put through a prolonged and perverse sexual assault. The physical description matched and the method was the same as the first linked attack. The victim had been grabbed from behind, the attacker had promised that he wouldn't rape her, and the words and rhythms of speech used throughout the assault pointed almost certainly to this being the same man. The Brighton case also had DNA recovered from the scene, and samples from Monarch were sent off for a comparison to be made with the Brighton DNA. It proved to be an exact match. That meant that by now, three police forces were involved in the hunt for a rapist who had struck, to date, five times. This was to grow on the 28th of October when a 21-year-old woman was followed on her way home from work and indecently assaulted in a darkened doorway by an attacker who bore all the characteristics, modus operandi and description of monarch man. DNA was again recovered from the scene. On the following day, a 22-year-old woman who lived in a bedsit block in Hampstead, London, encountered a man in the communal lobby of the block that she took to be a new neighbour. He was late 20s to mid 30s, good looking, smelled clean, you get the drift. He was also very smooth talking and likeable and was eventually invited to the young woman's room on the pretense of having a look round her flat because he was a new neighbour. Once inside, she was savagely sexually assaulted and was again threatened in the now familiar way and robbed of her money and mobile phone. Both of these cases were conclusively linked to the monarch operation. The criminal intelligence branch at New Scotland Yard had meanwhile been running an analysis of all known details concerning the reported attacks in an attempt to see whether the rapist may have committed more crimes and they'd found no less than 40 unsolved cases in the metropolitan area alone that were potential matches for Operation Monarch. These were then refined through much stricter criteria and eventually a shorter list of 12 cases, very closely similar cases to those of the MO and descriptions of the Monarch cases, was arrived at. All of these had occurred before the attack in Brighton, and this left police reeling. This man had by now attacked at least 19 women, and the very real fear amongst police was that this man would ultimately kill a victim if he wasn't stopped. And of course, if he hadn't already. A psychological profiler brought in to paint a picture of the offender was to explain that he dominated and controlled his victims because it made him feel good. It cancelled out any inadequacies he had and satisfied his need to feel powerful. He loved to humiliate and take risks and was considered to plan his attacks carefully. He could think fast on his feet and was a smooth, confident talker, one who was able to appear charming and non-threatening. He selected a particular victim type in that all of his victims were petite, slim and dark-haired, and he had a ferocious sexual appetite. But he also had mixed feelings about his crimes. The tears he had cried during one of the attacks were for himself, not his victim. He wanted his victims to like him, and this was perhaps why he spent so much time after the assault with them, talking. Yet how could they like him after he just raped them? He would always attack and dominate them, as this was a reflection of his own insecurity. His looks would be very important to him, he would be a bullying and controlling person, and if he was in a relationship, it would likely be as an abuser. The offender was also likely to have an unusual job. 
The hours of the attacks and the behaviour patterns dictated that this man did not work to a usual timetable. It was thought that it was not the need for sex that drove this man, but the buzz from the control and the fear of the victim. He'd likely be in police files somewhere having come to attention before for offences. Not necessarily rape, but most likely sexual offences. He was an opportunistic and prolific offender. Numerous times he had attacked two or even three victims in the same day. He was confident and he left the crime scenes relatively clean. But he failed in his forensic awareness by leaving traces of his DNA at many of the scenes. Worryingly, he was also building up momentum in his offences. While the hunt moved into December, Monarchman struck again, twice in the same day, Friday the 11th of December. But these attacks were to lead to vital pieces of evidence. The first victim described what happened. It was just a normal journey from work, getting on the tube, walking down to my house, which normally took me about five minutes. I didn't see anyone following me at all. Then I got to my front door, put the key in, and suddenly he was there, he pushed past me. That was nothing so unusual. There were lots of other flats and I assumed he was heading to one of them. But as she walked past, the man dragged her into the shadows under the stairwell and committed a serious sexual assault on her in the now sadly familiar fashion. Before leaving, he then ordered the woman to give him her bank card, which she complied with, but deliberately gave him a false five-digit pin number which he strangely didn't pick up on. The attacker went immediately to a nearby branch of Barclays Bank and tried to obtain money using the victim's cash card and the PIN number he'd been given, which of course failed and the machine swallowed the card after the third attempt. But this meant he had spent long enough at the cash point to have been able to be captured on CCTV. Then about an hour after this attack, a woman was walking over York Bridge in Regent's Park when a man jumped out at her, grabbed her and held her in an arm lock. She fought back strongly, however, and was able to kick him twice in the groin hard. Shaken by this uncommon resistance to his attacks, the man decided to flee and vaulted over a nearby metal fence. As he did so, he cut his hand really badly. Both attacks were immediately reported and details and descriptions were passed on to the Monarch team, who by now knew the handiwork of the man so well to know that he had struck again. Following these attacks, they acted quickly, the cash point was found that had swallowed the victim's cash card and CCTV from the exact time this had occurred was obtained and it gave police their first photographic image of the man they were hunting, albeit not one clear enough for an identification. Police had also visited all late night chemists within a mile of the Regent's Park attack asking staff about any men who had come in seeking medication or dressings for a seriously cut hand and CCTV was again gleaned from the superdrug store on London's Oxford Street that showed a man buying just that. It was later discovered that the attacker had considered that police may be able to trace him through this, and in a move that was to show just how calculating this man was, he had attempted to cover his tracks. The man had made a 999 call and told the operator that he had wanted to report an incident to police that he had just been involved in. He was put through to police and the following are extracts from that call. Hello, I'm sorry to trouble you. I've just witnessed a bag snatch in London. I saw it happen. He pushed her over, grabbed her by the neck, pushed her into a bush thing, grabbed her purse and just ran. He had the purse in his hand. She screamed and as soon as he saw me, he just ran. I want to remain anonymous if I can. I gave chase to the bloke, a black fella. 
nearly caught him. I ran over a fence. I cut myself on the fence, gave chase to him, nearly caught him, but no way. I don't know where this happened. I think it's somewhere near Baker Street Station. Police were planning a mass press appeal that would spearhead a reconstruction and televised appeal on the now defunct BBC TV series Crime Watch UK. Now I know that regular listeners to the podcast will be aware that I tend to go on about Crime Watch quite often on here and that many of the cases featured have been appealed at one time or on occasion multiple times on Crime Watch. But this was the beauty of the show. It did feature those colder cases and it was actually information received as a direct result of a Crime Watch appeal that was to lead to convictions in several of the most infamous cases in British criminal history. For example, the killers of James Bulger were brought to justice as a result of a direct information received by Crime Watch. And this is to name just one of many. It was a popular successful show and it was universally hailed and championed by all of the police forces in the UK who each used to jump at the chance of getting an appeal to their unsolved cases on it. But eventually the BBC decided that our licensing fee is better spent making EastEnders more gloomy and making more no-mark baffling and boring dramas rather than a useful show that's proven to work and help catch and convict criminals. I can't and won't understand the logic behind getting rid of it, but it remains a sad day that it was cancelled, and only the other day I was discussing this with a friend. BBC should now stand for Bring Back Crime Watch. So the Crime Watch appeal was being broadcast on Tuesday 15th of December, and the day before this, a nationwide press appeal that was to spearhead the television appeal was published in newspapers. This contained details of the attacks and a sanitised description of the offender's MO and a list of dates and offences and a photofit image of the offender. It was decided that although police had a photographic image of the offender from the Cashpoint CCTV, they would keep this back if the photofit used on the appeal failed to give them the response they were eagerly hoping for and anticipating. On the night Crime Watch was broadcast, but actually before the programme had aired, The officer leading the investigation and the one who was to appear on the programme that evening, Detective Chief Superintendent Lee Weavers, received the telephone call that he had been waiting and hoping for. The Crime Watch programme on tonight. I've just seen the trailer. The rapist is my brother. Those were the words of a man called Kevin Baker, who had contacted police and passed on details of a possible suspect after seeing the photo fit on a lunchtime TV trailer for that evening's Crime Watch UK. The suspect he named was his brother, Richard Anthony Baker. When the records for Richard Baker were checked, he began to look like a promising suspect. He was 34 years old, and his physical description closely matched that of Monarch Man. But most interestingly, he had previous convictions for sexual offences. In 1987, he had been sentenced at Exeter Crown Court for raping a 19-year-old girl from Bideford in North Devon. His brother Kevin was also jailed for four years for this offence after the pair raped the girl in a van near Bideford Rectory. A year after being released from prison for this sentence, Baker appeared in court in Bristol, again accused of rape, this time of a prostitute, but the woman failed to appear at court and the case was dismissed. Then a year later, in 1995, Baker was once again sentenced to four years imprisonment for having sex with a 15-year-old work-experienced girl. After first claiming the girl was 17, Baker instead pleaded guilty. 
he served two years of this sentence before being released. With his description and background, the incident team felt that Baker was one of the most promising suspects they had had, but there was a problem. Since his release from prison in 1997, Baker had been working as a DJ in Torremolinos in Spain, and he lived between there and the UK periodically. He was a ladies' man, and when he was back in the UK, he would often spend his time between staying at the Baker family home, which was down in Bodmin in Cornwall, and staying at the homes of different female friends dotted all around the country, many of whom lived in the metropolitan and southeast areas of the UK. The dilemma was that Baker was currently staying down in Cornwall, and he was due to be travelling back to Torremolinos very shortly. Did police act or not? Because if he was their man, it may take a lifetime to extradite him back to the UK. So a decision had to be made, and by this time it was 8pm, just an hour away from the Crime Watch appeal being aired. After considering that if Baker was their man and they didn't act, that there could be many more victims and obviously he could get away and not be extradited, a warrant was issued for his arrest, but the manpower for the Operation Monocont was saturated around the southeast. It was also possible that if Richard Baker was the man police sought, that he may flee immediately after the Crime Watch appeal was aired. So Bodmin CID was contacted and a police presence was arranged to keep watch on the Baker's family home. If he was to leave the house, orders were made to arrest him on sight. As the appeal aired on television, Detective Chief Superintendent Weavers received a fax informing him that information had just been received that Richard Baker had been charged with a rape and indecent assault earlier that year in Spain, but the charges had been dropped against him. This was it. The Operation Monarch team were now convinced that Baker was the man they'd been hunting. In the real-time scenario unfolding down in Bodmin, however, the police surveilling the Baker house had had to park away off from the house to avoid being spotted. A short time after the Crime Watch appeal had been shown, a car pulled out of the drive and the police surveilling the house could not see who was driving, so as a result could not make an arrest. After some frantic checking, Fearing that their suspect had fled after seeing himself on TV, Kevin Baker was contacted and he informed police that his brother had caught a late bus that evening to Lost Withal and was heading to Heathrow where he would transfer to another coach before catching an early morning flight back to Spain from Gatwick. Two officers from the incident room at Belgravia were sent to Heathrow to intercept and arrest Baker but neither knew what he really looked like. They only had the photo fits and a basic description of him to go on and this must have been a daunting task because it was the run up to Christmas and Heathrow Airport, which is busy at the best of times, was packed. The two officers found the coach that had travelled up from Lost Whittle and then noticed a man get off who was a staggering match for the photo fits. What clinched it for them was that he had a bandage on his hand. They went up and identified themselves and asked the man if he was Richard Baker. When he said that he was, they informed him that he was being arrested on suspicion of rape. Baker's response was to burst into tears. He was taken to Belgravia, where he was to appear in court on a holding charge and was given a three-day detention. Baker's luggage that he had had when he was arrested was searched and produced several items of evidence which, although circumstantial, convinced police that they had found the man that they were looking for. In the bags was found a black and white striped long-sleeved t-shirt 
and a bottle of prescription medicine with a label from a pharmacy that could place Baker as being in London on the day of the last two attacks. His address book was found that contained names and addresses of scores of women throughout the country and it was later found that Baker would often charm his way into staying with different ones of these when he was periodically back in the UK. He would also use different hire car companies each time he was back. At the Baker family home in Bodmin, a calendar that charted the periods when he was working abroad was to put him as being in the UK for many of the attacks under the Operation Monarch investigation. And when Spanish police were contacted and requested to search his flat in Torremolinos, they reported back that Baker had a large quantity of Rohypnol there and a portfolio of many degrading Polaroid pictures of young women. They also reported that Baker had been recently arrested on suspicion of drugging and sexually assaulting a young girl, but no charges had been filed. With this evidence, three full days of questioning Baker began, but apart from periods which he would spend in tears, he maintained a no-comment stance to everything that was put to him. Between the sessions of interviews, Baker was placed on identity parades and was positively identified by numerous victims of his attacks. This was enough to charge him and he was charged with numerous counts including rape and indecent assault, 21 in total, and remanded in custody awaiting trial. Whilst on remand, more evidence was found against Baker. Experts had managed to match his voice to the telephone call to police and facial mapping software was able to match Baker to the image of the rapist using the victim's cash card. But, as so often is the case, it was the miracle of DNA that was to be the clincher in this. Baker's previous prison sentences had preceded the National DNA Database, so police never had his DNA on file. When a sample was taken after his arrest, Baker's DNA was found to be a 1 in 10 million match with that of Monarchman and that matched DNA left at several of the crime scenes. How do you explain that away then? The trial of Richard Baker began at the Old Bailey on the 10th of May 1999, where he entered a guilty plea to four counts of indecent assault and one of causing actual bodily harm. He pleaded guilty to these because he'd been picked out of identity parades in each case, and the all-important DNA evidence was irrefutable. In these... Baker was to chillingly admit in his own words, I enjoyed the control. I put those women through hell, I know I did. What I did to those poor girls was horrific. I put them through a hell they will never get over. The other charges Baker pleaded not guilty to. The trial was to last 10 days, throughout which his victims were forced to give evidence and undertake cross-examination from Baker's defence counsel. They proved to be dignified witnesses and they impressed the jury with their tales of Baker's actions and how he had affected their lives. All the time, Baker just shook his head and tried to appear a sympathetic character. He even himself tried to work his charm upon the jury, telling them that he knew he had done terrible things and he knew he was going to prison for a long time, but asking them not to convict him of rape as this would mean a life sentence for him. The jury were unimpressed and they found Richard Anthony Baker guilty on each charge against him with unanimous verdicts. Mr Justice Stokes postponed sentencing pending psychiatric reports, and on the 18th of June 1999, Baker once again stood before him in the same court to hear his fate. 
he was sentenced to four life sentences with a further 49-year sentence for the crimes under the Operation Monarch investigation, with the judge telling Baker that he was depraved and wicked, that he posed a formidable danger to women for the near future, and he could not even be considered for parole until he had served at least 12 years. He was then taken away to Belmarsh Prison to begin his life sentence. Following the verdict, Baker's shattered father said, I hope and pray he gets the help he needs. I feel so desperately sorry for the victims. We tried to bring Richard up to know right from wrong. Sometimes I have to ask myself whether he is evil or mad. Police remain convinced that Baker is responsible for many more attacks, both in the UK and on the continent with the charges he was convicted of believed to be only a small number of the offences he has actually committed. He was a good-looking charmer, the kind of guy who always seemed to enjoy the company of women, or occasionally men as it was to transpire, with his job as a DJ making him glamorous to the holidaymakers who flocked to the Spanish resorts that he worked on. He worked out regularly, he was fit and athletic, he was well-dressed, well-groomed, so he would have been attractive to members of both sexes. After his arrest, Baker was to claim that he had slept with more than 2,000 women. He could have been likeable and successful. But this charming and likeable Lothario was a mask, for Richard Baker was one of the most evil and prolific sex offenders in British criminal history. And this wasn't just confined to the UK. He liked life in Spain, he enjoyed the sun and his job as a DJ, meant it was always easy to attract women, which there were always a constant, ever-changing cycle of holidaymakers. Baker was very charming and he'd often chat up and charm these people and then would often slip drugs, particularly rohypnol, into their drinks. Sometimes he would then take the women back to his rented flats when his need for control was too overwhelming and he'd then take degrading pictures of his victims before, during and after raping them. They were powerless, thrown into unconsciousness as he drugged them. Isn't that the height of despicable, absolutely disgraceful, chilling, chilling, awful, awful person? After his arrest, people who knew him in Spain told how Baker was known to expose himself indecently and that the tales of angry confrontations with the fathers of young holidaymakers who had accused him of interfering with them were many, leading him to being sacked from more than one job due to complaints received about him. But Baker always managed to charm his way into another job. He really like, did have the gift of the gab, this guy, apparently. An account of how he operated is as follows in this account that was linked to him following his arrest. In June 1998, two Swedish girls reported to police in Marbella that they had been raped in Torremolinos. The story was to become all too familiar. The pair claimed they had met a man called Ricardo on a beach and he had invited them to join him that evening at a Torremolinos bar where he was a DJ. The girls had accepted, but told police that they remembered little of that night after their arrival at the disco. The following morning, they awoke lying next to each other in a bed in a strange flat. Both naked, both were sore. Frightened, the girls left the flat, and as they did, they saw Ricardo and two other men asleep in another bedroom. It was not until a photograph arrived after the two girls had returned home to Sweden that the suspicions of police were confirmed, as they had suspected Baker of being Ricardo, after a fax had been received informing them that a convicted rapist had headed to Torremolinos. The photograph showed Richard Baker with his arms around the waist of one of the girls. 
Baker was arrested in connection with these allegations, but he claimed that the two Swedish girls had consented to sex with him. It was his word against theirs, and the police had so little to go on, they could find no evidence to make the charges stick. But it was clear that he was regarded as dangerous, and he was watched closely by police, although his regular trips back to the UK made constant surveillance difficult. And of course, it was between stints in Spain where he would attack and offend in the UK. After his arrest, the police commissioner in Torremolinos, Jose Cabrera, said of Baker, To my mind, there is no doubt that Baker is a psychopath with an exaggerated sex drive and obsessed with dominating women. That is why he used Rohypnol to subdue them. In my 30 years as a police officer, I have never been so worried about the actions of one individual as I was about Richard Baker. He is a time bomb. I am convinced that one day he would have killed. So Baker would attack and molest to satisfy his sexual appetite whilst on the continent. But on his regular trips back home, he would often stay with girlfriends he'd met abroad and would then make trips out to stalk and assault women, telling them that he would kill them before raping or horrifically sexually assaulting them. The exact number of women that he has attacked or indecently assaulted will never be known, but investigations did continue and the likelihood that this man is the most prolific and dangerous sexual predator that at least the UK has ever known, responsible for many more attacks on women who may not have even come forward, that's managed to keep him imprisoned as he remains incarcerated to this day. But it's done nothing to effect to rehabilitate him his time in prison and he's still dangerous now, as by 2016 he was back in the news again. In the years following his conviction, Baker has spent time in various secure hospitals, including Broadmoor, and by February 2012 he was in Chadwick Lodge, which is a medium security mental health unit in Milton Keynes. Psychiatrists believe that he was on his way to rehabilitation, and he'd been sent to a less secure facility as a result of this. There was even talk of a possible parole hearing in 2017. It was, however, in Chadwick Lodge that Baker was able to persuade friends of his to smuggle in a Samsung tablet as part of a parcel of sweets, magazines and stationery for him. And this was concealed within a modified wooden picture frame that Baker had adapted in woodwork classes to hide the tablet and charger whilst in his cell. Staff at Chadwick Lodge were unaware of the tablet's existence but became suspicious when a therapist at Broadmoor received a friend request from a suspicious Facebook account. She had treated Baker during the four years he had been in Broadmoor, and the account was in the name of Anthony Recab. This is Baker spelt backwards, and Anthony is his middle name. Chadwick Lodge staff were alerted, and a scanner showed an internet device was hidden in his room somewhere. It took three searches to find the tablet as it was so well hidden, but it was found eventually, and the contents made for disturbing viewing. There were about 30 bookmarks on the tablet, containing folders named such things as Illegal Porn and Best Jailbait Ever, to name but a few, and contained within these were some of the most serious and horrific images of child abuse imaginable. Baker was charged with offences of possessing and making indecent images of children and at Aylesbury Crown Court in June 2016, he was found guilty on nine counts of these and sentenced to a further six years in prison. The judge, Francis Sheridan, told Baker, 
I believe you will rape again if you are released. You are obsessed with sex and your interest now has moved to children. I do not think this man has learnt a single thing during his time in prison. You have five convictions for rape. The facts are horrible. You defiled a young girl of 15 and you were given a life sentence many years ago. You have told this jury that you suffer from many conditions, both physical and mental, and I think you are one of the most dangerous men I have ever had the displeasure of trying. You have started showing an interest in children of four or five years old. You're a control freak. If ever there was a clear and present danger to women and female children, then this man represents it. Think of all the lives that Richard Baker has, if not totally ruined, then tainted for life. Many of his victims had to leave their homes or jobs, move away, his actions made relationships break down, and left his victims with a lifelong fear of things like the dark or strangers. One of his victims even had to abort his baby. The exact amount of victims he has had will never be known. Baker himself may even have lost count. But the accounts described here and the details of his actions in Chadwick Lodge certify one thing. Richard Baker was, and still remains, a very dangerous man, and one who would, if he had the chance, would continue to offend. I'm in no doubt that there are countless other victims of Baker out there who've never come forward, perhaps through fear or even shame, perhaps some who are no longer living even, perhaps some victims who do not even realise this is the guy responsible. Richard Anthony Baker deserves to spend the rest of his days behind bars, where he cannot stalk and rape young women anymore. Why then did Baker feel the need to act how he did? Check out his mugshot online. He's not a gargoyle by any means. He's good looking, clean cut. He was described as charming and as described he had the life of a Lothario that a lot of people would kill for. But somewhere down the line, the buzz of inflicting fear, humiliation and control over women and the use of threats and violence became greater than any thrill of the chase and even greater than the act of sexual intercourse itself. It was this that floated his boat. This is a guy who had a serious history of sexual offending, so it's likely that this problem was in place from an early age. It was in evidence at least as early as 1987 anyway. Personally, I think he should be subject to a whole life tariff order. I do not believe that a manipulative calculating predator such as him can ever change and I would hope that any evidence that could come to light that ties him to any other attacks is used to prosecute him to the full extent of the law to keep him behind bars. There's quite much to read about Richard Baker if you search it out. I've researched and pulled together an overview of the case here and hopefully I've explained what he's like, how he operated and how he was caught. What do you guys think? Is this one of the most dangerous offenders in Britain or what? Let me know in the discussion thread in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook. I always look forward to your responses. And any new members are always welcomed, of course. The more the merrier. Again, there isn't any such thing as a nice crime. And I especially despise sex crimes, as you can probably tell. I find them despicable and a certain different level of evil. So I know that this week again may have been heavy going. Do hope that it has entertained you, however, and thanks very much for sticking with me and listening, guys. I shall be back, of course, next week, and next week, another case will be here to tickle your earbuds. I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, signing off now, but I'd like to finish with big thanks again to you guys for getting the podcast to where it is now. 20,000 downloads. Respect. 
It's amazing to me and I'm ever so grateful. Catch me on the usual social media outlets. I can be found as the True Crime Enthusiast or a variation on that, but never a massive one. I hope you one and all have a good week. Take care and be safe and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.